we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3, and so turn with me there, or turn on your phone and head to Hebrews 3, and while you're turning there, let me just say uh, greetings in the name of our Lord, greetings from Open Door Church, and then also greeting from the network of churches that call itself Pillar. It's a joy to, to be here, a joy to partner in the gospel, to plant churches and revitalize churches with Oakhurst, and uh, it's a joy and a privilege to be able to open God's word with God's people. Uh, thankful to the elders for this opportunity. Uh, your lead pastor, Dave, uh, has become a good friend over the last few years. I uh, got to spend a lot of time with him. Now, I don't know if you know this about him or not, but Dave is sort of a safety guy, kind of a uh, sort of a doomsday prepper. Uh, and I learned about this because I went on a trip with Dave right before COVID hit. Uh, we were in Europe traveling together, and uh, we landed back in the country like on a Monday. I think the president addressed the nation for the first time on Tuesday. By Sunday, everything was shut down. But we left two weeks before that, and I, I remember getting a text from Dave that said, hey, Nate, are you taking a mask with you on this trip? And I, I still remember my response was, Dave, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> like, why in the world would I take a mask with me to, you know, to Scotland and to Ireland? And it was because of this, this COVID pandemic that was coming, and so I learned how to survive COVID from Dave, which meant for him stockpiling N95 masks and toilet paper. For me, it meant calling back to my wife and telling her to stockpile frozen pizza and chocolate chip cookies, but we were getting ready. But all that to say, when you have Dave as a friend, you have your own personal Dwight Schrute, safety officer, <laughs> who will help you prepare for the things to come. And so, <laughs> in all seriousness, though, Dave has become a good friend, and I love partnering with him. And he's going to become a friend who I trust in the most important things. And so, Dave, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here and open uh, God's word, and also to give you a hard time about COVID. This morning, I want to turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 3. Now, you know, a good question to consider often is, why does God not take us to heaven immediately when we become Christians? And I think there are several answers to that question, uh, but part of the answer to that question is that he desires to sanctify us. He desires to make us look more like Christ through perseverance. You might say it like this, he is beginning to make us now what we will be on that day or in the context of the passage this morning he is working out in us something that we already possess spiritually and positionally but will one day ex we will experience fully and even physically so this morning i want to draw our attention to the theme of rest i want to draw our attention to the importance of perseverance in the faith and as we will see from this text this will be for our own good this will also be for the benefit of others and ultimately, it will be for the glory of the triune God as, as his light will shine in the present darkness through his people so that others might be drawn to him. So I'm going to read a portion of Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to focus this morning just really on verses 7 through 14, but I'll probably read at least all of chapter 3 and maybe a little bit of chapter 4 as we prepare to study these, these verses this morning. And so let's turn our attention to God's word. And the author of Hebrews writes this as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. The apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a 
sons. And if we are his house, indeed, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses, and with whom he was provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to him did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. So, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of us, any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it came to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying, through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest also has rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let's pray. Now, Father, now as we turn our attention to the word, Father, I do pray that you would help us this morning. Father, that you would help me, a sinner. Father, would you show me your mercy so that I can clearly explain and expound the words of life. And Father, help the hearers. Father, I pray that we'd be able to receive your word this morning like we receive food. And it would be for our good. It would be for your glory. Father, now would you sanctify us in the truth. Father, we know your word is true. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, sports can be a wonderful metaphor for life. That's because sports involve kind of struggle and endurance, perseverance, teamwork, the need for encouragement, for goals, a mission, the, the need to, to grow and to get better and, and more. And there have been great moments in sports history where competitors delivered kind of incredible halftime speeches to rally their team on toward the goal and to endure in the fight, endure in the mission. I remember a few years ago as I was watching the college football national championship, I remember Tim Tebow having a halftime speech when they played Oklahoma where he implored his team 
30 minutes for the rest of our lives. Now, if you don't know what he was doing, Tim Tebow was actually ripping off James Vanderbeek from the movie Varsity Blues. You know, that's when Dawson's Creek played quarterback in a high school football movie. Now, in a less cheesy speech immortalized in an even better movie called Rudy, it's where Newt Rockney rallies Notre Dame by sharing the former Notre Dame coach, Coach Gipps, final words before he died. And here's what he said. Rock, sometime when the team is up against it and the brakes are beating the boys, tell them to go out there with all they got and win one for the Gipper. That speech still fires me up, almost makes me like Notre Dame. But that's sort of like liking Duke, so that's not going to happen. You know, also in Christian literature, like John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, it highlights these themes of, of struggle and endurance and perseverance, of encouragement, of, of mission, of, of teamwork as part of the Christian life. Charles Spurgeon, considering the great work, likens his role as a pastor to this man in the story called Mr. Greatheart. And he likens the role of Christians in the lives of one another as a mission we are on to help one another persevere so that we might reach the goal. And here's what he writes of this mission and this perseverance and this teamwork as he compares himself to Mr. Greatheart. He says this, I am occupied in my small way as Mr. Greatheart was in Bunyan's day. He says, I do not compare myself with that champion, but I'm in the same line of business. He said, I'm engaged in personally conducted tours to heaven. Just think about that for a second as, as a descriptor of the Christian life, that we are engaged in a personally conducted tour to heaven. Thus, it is my business, as best I can tell, to kill dragons and to cut off giants' heads and to lead on the timid and the trembling. I'm often afraid of losing some of the weaklings. I have heartache for them. But by God's grace, and then he speaks to the congregation, by God's grace and your kind and generous help in looking after one another, I hope we shall all travel safely to the river's edge. He talks about, I have had to part with many there. He said, I have stood on the brink, and I have heard them singing in the midst of the stream. And I have almost seen the shining ones, the angels, lead them up the hill through the gates into the celestial city. In the text we're looking at this morning, we will see indeed that Christianity is a, is a team sport. It's a community mission where we need one another to spur us on in endurance and perseverance and growth so that we make it safely to the river's edge. Now, it is true, and it is important to say this up front, we are not saved by works. We are not saved by our sheer tenacity. We are saved by Christ's grace. We are saved by Christ's faithfulness. But there are repeated warnings in the book of Hebrews that kind of tell us that it is possible for some to give at least initial indication of new life only to eventually fall away. It's what the theologians call apostatizing. Thus, they, for all people, indicate they were never truly a part of the people of God. After all, Charles Spurgeon says about this persevering faith, he says this, valid faith is by definition persevering faith. And what I want us to see this morning from Hebrews chapter 3 is the importance of perseverance in the faith and the role we play in the lives of one another to persevere, to stay in the race, to reach the final goal where we will have eternal rest in Christ. So I've been praying this morning in many ways that this sermon will serve kind of like a halftime speech that will certainly convict where necessary, but I'm also hoping it will encourage us in a broken world to not grow weary in well-doing. From the text this morning, I'm going to identify four words that begin with the letter H to help us think through how we grow in grace, how we persevere, 
and how we will enter his eternal rest. Four H words, and they're this, that we will hear, heed, help, and hold. That we would hear his word, that we would heed his warnings, that we would help our fellow worshipers, and that we would hold fast to our confession. So first one, that we would hear his word. We see that in verse 7 and 8. And here's what the author says. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. The author here quotes what we've already read together in this service, Psalm 95, as he warns his audience not to be like the children of Israel during the Exodus generation who ultimately rebelled and fell away. And as we know from other parts of the New Testament, these warnings come to us as well. Paul tells the church at Corinth in, in 1 Corinthians that these things have been written down for us upon whom the ends of the ages has come. Now it's a fascinating verse if you just fly by it, you may miss what's happening in verse 7, but it's fascinating because the author of Hebrews attributes Psalm 95 not to David, he attributes Psalm 95 to the Holy Spirit. This is one of the clearest testimonies in all the Bible about the Bible speaking about itself and what theologians call the doctrine of inspiration, that God has, has breathed out these scriptures that we have. That's why B.B. Warfield says, when scripture speaks, God speaks. And the words in verse 7 also affirm the living nature of the scriptures. The text doesn't say, as the Holy Spirit said. The text says, as the Holy Spirit says, present tense. The scriptures are breathed out by God, and they are alive and active. And therefore, we'll see here in the text, the height of rebellion, the sign of a hardened heart, will be connected to one's rejection of the word of God. And it has been like this from the beginning. The initial act of sin, the initial act of rebellion was our parents in the garden refusing to take God at his word, refusing to live by the word of God. And because of that, the Israelites also do not receive, do not trust his words. They fail to keep their hearts oriented towards God because they fail to keep his word. This leads to them rebelling against the great God who has dramatically delivered them from Egypt and from slavery. Just think about why this is serious. If you think about this in the context of Adam and Eve, as we think about this in the context of Israel's own disobedience, and as we consider our own disobedience, why is this so important? And just think about it in the context of what the scriptures say about themselves. 2 Timothy 3, the scriptures are breathed out by God and they are able to make us wise unto salvation. Isaiah 40, they stand forever. Psalm 119, they are a lamp to our feet. 1 Peter 1, they will remain forever. Isaiah 55, they will not return empty. Proverbs 30, all of it will prove to be true. Psalm 19, they are perfect and they revive the soul. John 17, they are truth and they sanctify us. Matthew 5, none of it will pass away. John 10, they cannot be broken. Psalm 1, the blessed man, the happy man, delights in them. Psalm 12, they are pure. Proverbs 4, they are life to those who find them. And as we already read in Hebrews 4, they are sharper than any two-edged sword. Brothers and sisters, just think about the claim we are making with the Bible. The claim is that God wrote a book. God who made the Son wrote a book and then graciously gave it to us. And the questions I often wrestle with is, do I really believe this about the Bible? Am I amazed by this? Would the way that I treat it and the way that I use it reflect the reality of the truths the Bible says about itself? 
God in his amazing love. Just think about this. A loving parent speaks to their children, and God in his amazing love for his children has not left us to wonder about him. He has not left us to wonder what it is to know him, to look like him, to grow, to persevere, to help us reach the finish line. God has spoken. And as we see here in the text, it's not just that God has spoken. God is speaking through his word. The question for us this morning is, are we listening? Second H word, heed his warnings. We see this in verses 7 through 11 as well. It says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Here's what's happening here. Though Israel had seen great works of God's power and love, they still presumed upon his kindness. And they started to doubt him. I mean, just consider what had happened for them. They had seen him deliver from the tyranny of Pharaoh. They had seen him preserve them through the Red Sea when the rest of the Egyptians were eliminated, keep them alive to the edge of the promised land. They had seen him lead by pillars of fire and smoke. He had provided food. He had provided Krispy Kreme called manna in the desert, and yet they still grew discontent. They grumbled about their food. They still doubted him. They failed to believe that they would take the promised land because of the size of the Canaanites. They murmured. They complained. They even hardened themselves, it says, to the point that they pined for the days of Egypt. This is why it's called rebellion. Such great, such ungratefulness at the salvation and delivering power of God. I mean, it was tragic. They had seen kindness after kindness, evidence of his power after evidence of his power. They knew he could do all that he promised he would do, and yet they still turned their back on him. They failed. It says here they put God to the test. They did this by not trusting him, by not obeying him. And as a result of their wickedness and their rebellion, God is incensed by their ungratefulness. He is, it says here in the text, he is provoked toward their lack of trust. He is provoked toward their disobedience to his word. You know, brothers and sisters, the Bible is clear that God is long-suffering, that God is patient. And yet it's also clear that he will in no way excuse rebellion. He will be moved with righteous wrath toward the wicked. He will be moved toward those who have turned their back on the very one who has provided a way for them to be saved, to be delivered, and to be made his people. As a result, in verse 11, for Israel, God has set his wrath on them, and the severe punishment here is they will not enter the promised land. They will not enter the rest that he had promised long ago. That's important here for us to understand. Rest here certainly means the land beyond the Jordan. Okay, it means the, the promised land. But we cannot confuse here rest with sleep. That's not what's in mind here. I was thinking about this last night as my 15-month-old is crying, and I'm thinking, i got to preach tomorrow. Please give me sleep. No, instead, and I think it's, again, important for the context and, and understanding the text we're looking at this morning, rest here means the blessings of God. It means the blessings of God's safety and security. It certainly means salvation from enemies. It's this idea of no more striving to earn his favor and his blessings. Again, these blessings of security and safety for his people. It has echoes of Eden, right? There was no war, no strife. 
no sin. But for our purposes, it also has a foretaste of glory. It's a foretaste of the ultimate rest in the city to come, where there will be no more sin. What Bunyan calls in Pilgrim's Progress the celestial city. And just consider this this morning. Rest for Israel was the promised land, but ultimate rest for us is the new Jerusalem. A day when there will be no need to lock our doors. A day when there will be no need to prepare for pandemics. Today we'll get rest on that day. A day when there will be no more sin. And just imagine what that's going to be like, a day when you will never sin again. You'll never hurt other people by your sin. You'll never be hurt by other people's sin. And just think about the glory of that day, right? We will, we will eat amazing food in a place where our taste buds will no longer be damaged by the fall. I mean, queso's good now. How good do you think queso's going to be on that day? That is the rest that is being talked about here. And the author of Hebrews will go on to point out that this is already ours spiritually. This is already ours positionally. But it will one day be ours fully because of what Christ, Christ our Sabbath rest has accomplished for us. Christ the better Joshua who delivers us from sin and death. Taking us through the Jordan into the promised land where there will only be rest from enemies forevermore. A minute ago, I just reflected on the ungratefulness of the Israelites at the saving acts of God, at the acts of God's power. But in much the same way, when David confronted Nathan, and it wasn't until David, or sorry, when Nathan confronted David, and it wasn't until Nathan said, you're the man, did David realize that he was actually speaking to him. Brothers and sisters, in the same way, we struggle with the exact same struggles that Israel struggled with. I mean, have you ever thought something like this? Yeah, God, you save me, you provide for my needs, you give me my daily bread, but why don't I have the job that he has? Or why don't I have the family that she has? Why don't I have this? Why don't I have that? Yeah, I mean, salvation's great and all, but it'd be nice if I could have this as well. Brothers and sisters, let's heed the Holy Spirit's warnings from Israel's example, and let's meditate on the goodness of God, lest we fall away. Now, in verse 12, the author shifts his appeal a little bit, he directly to the audience, directly to us with a warning not to follow in the footsteps of Israel. Look at what it says, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He's addressing believers here. He says, take care, brothers, and this is a true warning. And I want to be careful. I, I do not want to blunt the force of the text this morning. The author is not trying to answer the question, can you lose your salvation? No, instead, the author is giving a real exhortation to hear the warnings of God, lest you fall away. God warns his children not because he's some kind of cosmic killjoy. No, he warns his children because he loves his children. Warnings for our good, they're for our good. Warnings are meant to protect us. We know this, right? Warnings come on everything. Because the importance of warnings is so that you would enjoy things in the way they are intended to be enjoyed. That you would use them in the way they are intended to be used. There's some interesting warning labels, by the way, if you ever read some of them. read one recently on, on a baby stroll that said, make sure you remove the child before folding it. For an antenna, when they used to use, the, use these, one, was, one of the warnings was, do not install if you are drunk, pregnant, or both. 
Cheese Whiz. For best results, remove the cap. <laughs> On a bottle of dog medicine, may cause drowsiness. Use care when operating a car. And finally, on a bottle of rat poison, warning has been found to cause cancer in laboratory mice. Hope it also causes death. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, warnings are for our good, and such it is with the word of God. The warnings he gives us through his word. He is simply a loving parent telling us it would be harmful to you if you touch that hot stove. He warns us because he loves us, and he knows that sin destroys people, and sin destroys relationship, and sin destroys lives. God warns us here using the Israelites' fa failure. And just consider this. If the children of Israel, the children of Israel who were delivered in the Exodus, if they would be judged for turning away from him, what will happen to those of us who, as it says in Hebrews 10, trample underfoot the Son of God and profane the blood of the covenant? This is why I believe the unpardonable sin in the Gospels is the sin of unbelief. Not believing he is who he is, not believing he is who he says he is, and then not responding to him in that way. The only sin that cannot be forgiven is if someone rejects Christ. This will lead to destruction. It will lead to an eternal existence of no rest. We see here in verse 12 that an unbelieving heart is evil because it leads, leads us away from God. This is a failure to trust in God, to obey his word, to believe his promises. That's what apostasy is. It is one who has shown initially to be concerned with Christ and the things of God, but this one eventually walks away from him, rejects his lordship, rejects his word, rejects his ways, rejects his people. They now look nothing like what the Bible says a Christian should look like. And the author of Hebrews is saying, Guard yourself against this and watch out for an unbelieving heart. That's why I believe one of the prayers we must pray the most is what comes straight out of Mark 9, chapter 9 and verse 24. Daily we should be praying, Lord, I believe. Would you please help my unbelief? Third exhortation, third H word is that we would help his worshipers. He's going to turn to encouragement to all of us to help one another grow and persevere. Here's what he says in verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He says, but exhort one another. In order for us to hold firm and grow, we need each other. We to exhort, encourage, hold accountable, spur on, push towards the goal. We as God's family desire for all of us to win the prize, for all of us to get the crown and reach the finish line and hear those words from our Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. How is one way, or what is one way that's going to help us avoid going the way of Israel and falling into apostasy? And I think it's clear in the text, we immerse ourselves in the care of the church. We immerse ourselves in the fellowship of the godly. These are strong weapons to help us stay in the race. And Oakhurst, please hear me this morning. This is no small ministry that you have to one another. Just words of encouragement, words of at times rebuke, being in, in each other's lives. It is an urgent ministry. Our care and our encouragement has eternal significance. We remind one another daily of the dangers of sin and of the sweetness of Christ. A major tool in fighting spiritual apathy is inviting others into your life, and this should be a daily activity, the author is saying here. 
One of the things that should be happening daily that should mark Oakhurst is mutual encouragement. As we share struggles, encourage on to the prize, hold one another accountable to right belief and right conduct. There's an urgency to this, right? The author is saying, we are to do this today. As either today you will walk with God or you will walk away from God. This is an exhortation not to rest on past experience. Not to think, I remember when I prayed that prayer or cried at that sermon and walked down the aisle. No, this is not saying, though, that recalling past is necessarily a bad thing. Recalling evidence of grace is not wrong. They are certainly helpful and can help us jump back in the race. Past grace is evidence of future grace. But this is a call not to rely on them, but to be diligent today. This is a present exhortation to continue in the things that you have believed. A genuine Christian is not one who repents one time, but is one who continues to repent and believe and grow and fight. And you are to do this today. The devil's favorite word is tomorrow. I want to blame it on the devil every time I say, I'm going to start my diet tomorrow. Usually I say, I'm, you know, Kelsey, I'm going to start my diet Monday. But in seriousness, children in this room in particular, maybe unbelievers in this room, Satan certainly hopes you will be concerned with your salvation tomorrow. You have the rest of your life to worry about that. All of us in this room who profess to be Christians, Satan wants us to not deal with our sin today. We can enjoy it today. We can deal with it tomorrow. And this is why the author warns about the deceitfulness of sin. This is why we need each other to help us when we have blind spots and can't see our sin. Your sin never just announces itself that it's deceptive. Sin never says, I'm tricky. Sin never says, I'm slowly leading you on a path to destruction. Indeed, sin is crouching at the door. Sin is ready to devour us. And so the exhortation for us is to flee it. Don't play around with it. Don't say, I'll deal with it tomorrow. Flee it. Kill it. This means we need people in our lives to ask us tough questions like, is there anything right now that you love more or want more than faithfulness to Christ? The very thing the author is warning about here is the kind of attitude that says, I love Jesus. I want to honor him. But for this season, I want this sin. I'll give it up later. I stand before you as someone who has been involved in great sin before. But I would warn us not to presume upon the kindness of God. God does not owe us anything. Israel presumed upon the kindness of God. They missed out on the ultimate blessings of God. May we heed his warning. And we do that by knowing his word and by immersing ourselves in the community of faith. Final exhortation, hold fast to our confession. Verse 14 says this, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. Finally, we are told to hold on tight to our original confidence. When we first confess Christ as Lord, hold on tight to this confession. Stay on the pathway that, that he is putting you on because he is worthy. And if you do this, we get to share in Christ. We share in the anchor of our soul. And we are to help one another do this, right? Notice what the text says. The text says, we, not you, we have come to share in Christ. So hold on to him. Hold on tight. Now, I'm not a fan of lakes. I mean, there's mud in there, and there's snakes in there, and there's Chevy trucks in there, and just not a big fan. In college, I was dating a girl whose parents had a lake house, and so I went out there, and we were going to do jet skiing one day, and 
I was going to get on the jet ski right off the dock and uh, with her brother and go jet skiing. And her dad knew I didn't like snakes. And so as soon as I stepped onto the jet ski, I don't know what I did, but I made it turn. And so we flipped off into the water. And her dad just kind of calmly walked over to the end of the dock and goes, yeah, Nate, that's where most of the snakes hang out right there, right where I was. So I jumped up on the dock and pulled up as quick as I could. You know, he's laughing at me the whole time. And the rest of the day when we're tubing, I'm holding on so tight to the tube to make sure I don't fall in the water with the snake that my hands hurt for like a week after that. And the whole time he just laughed at me. Needless to say, it didn't work out. <laughs> but that is the picture here, spiritually. We are to hold on tight, hold on to our confession, hold on to his promises, hold on to him. And we need others more loving than her dad to help us in this path, to encourage us to hold on. In fact, every time we baptize someone here, every time you baptize someone here at Oakhurst, your commitment to them should be this. This is one of ours, and we're going to do everything we can to make sure this person makes it safely with us to the river's edge. Again, I don't think this text is a matter of whether you can lose your salvation at all. I think the New Testament clearly teaches in places like Romans 8, and others, that the genuinely saved person, and I use that word intentionally, that the genuinely converted person will persevere to the end and will be kept by God. After all, salvation is a matter of his work and not ours. But instead, this is a warning that there are some who for a season seem to show they are part of the people of God, but eventually by their lives and their belief and their conduct, they reveal that they are not. They show very little, if any, concerns about the things of God. John later tells us in the New Testament why that is. They went out from us because they were never of us. So rather than saying once saved, always saved, I think it's better to say, you know, truly saved, always saved. Or again, as Spurgeon said, valid faith by definition is persevering faith. Because the truth is Christian. Willful disobedience and Christian assurance should never go hand in hand. The Bible speaks over and over, as it does here, of the importance of our perseverance in the faith, that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So by way of application, let me return just briefly to Pilgrim's Progress. In that book, there's a, there's a moment where Christian, the lead character, speaks to a man whose name is Mr. Backslid. And he's talking about Christian backsliding, and he goes through the stages of what it looks like for someone to fall away, and I think it'll be instructive by way of application this morning. Here's what he says to Mr. Backslide. He says, I think it's like this. First, they withdraw their thoughts as much as possible from the remembrance of God, death, and judgment to come. They stop taking seriously the matters of eternity. Then by degrees, they give up their self-discipline, such as private prayer, curbing their lust, watching their conduct, regretting sin, and the like. Then they shun the company of lively, warm-hearted Christians. They withdraw from the gathering of the church. After that, they grow in negligent of public duties, such as hearing and reading of God's word, attending meetings, and the like. Then they begin to find fault with Christians, picking holes in the coats of the godly because of some weakness which they fancy they have seen in them, and casting aspersion on the good names of the disciples behind their backs. Then they begin to associate with worldly, loose, and evil-minded people. They also give way to carnal, lustful, and immoral practice in secret. And listen to this. They seek to find that conduct among those who are counted as true. That they may say they are their example. And then it says this. After this, they pleasure their sin openly. 
I think he preached this week out of Cain. He was made a shipwreck of his faith. And almost every single one of these things about him was true. It says this, being, them being hardened, they show themselves as they are, downright wicked, now being bogged down again in the gulf of misery. They perish forever in their own deceiving unless a miracle of grace prevents it. Our brothers and sisters, this is a clear reminder to us of our need of grace. Grace to save us, grace to sanctify us, grace to preserve us, grace to give us rest. And the good news this morning is that we have the work and the power of someone else. Certainly we have the work of another for forgiveness and mercy when we fail. Because the truth is, brothers and sisters, we will fail. But we should be of good cheer this morning, believers, because we know there is one who has never failed. There is one who, unlike Adam in the garden, unlike the Israelites in the wilderness, he did not fail when he was tempted. He did not grumble. He would not turn away from God. No, he would stare down the accuser of our brothers at his temptation, and he would tell him, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. We serve the one, and we hold on to the one who has never wavered in his obedience to God, even as he is staring into the cup of God's wrath. He would say, not my will, but your will be done. We look to another Joshua who can lead the children of God through the water of Jordan into the promised land, who can cut off their enemies, the one who took on our enemies at the cross, silencing even the last of those, death itself, as he has put death in the grave. Behold, one greater than Joshua is here. We look to and need another Moses who ushers in the new covenant. He does so by taking all of the punishments that would come upon those who disobeyed the law of Sinai. Those, though he had never sinned, though he had never broken the law, at the cross he becomes our sin bearer. At the cross he becomes our substitute. He becomes for us, Paul tells the church at Corinth, he becomes sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Behold, one greater than Moses is here. And brothers and sisters, we look to the one who would not enter his rest until he had accomplished all that he was sent to do, to deliver the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve from lifelong bondage to sin, to deliver them from death, and he would not rest until he said, it is finished. And then on the seventh day of the Passion Week, he would rest from his work in the tomb. After he had completed all that was necessary for our future and for our salvation and then on the first day of the new week he would de demonstrate dramatically that he is who he said he is he can do everything he says he can do because he walked out of the grave alive leaving death in his rearview mirror he will be able to take us safely home because death no longer has a hold on him and he has done this for ungrateful complaining sinners like me who are so often prone to wander if you're in this room and you're not a christian said earlier that the tide of rebellion is connected to the rejecting of God's word and the author of Hebrews tells us very clearly God has spoken most significantly in his son so please don't turn away from him embrace him cry out to him for mercy cry out to him for salvation and I promise you on the basis of the scripture if you will do that with faith I promise you that he can deliver you from lifelong bondage to sin he can deliver you from the wrath to come and he can give you a kingdom where there will be rest forevermore and brothers and sisters what is our response this morning I mean first and foremost it's what verse one says 
Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider his work on our behalf. Works will not save us, but trust in Christ and reliance upon his work indeed will. Aren't you thankful this morning that salvation is by grace alone and not by works? And then let's out of love for who he is, let's out of love for what he has done in delivering us from darkness, stick with it, stay in the fight, persevere by hearing his word, heeding his warnings, and holding to our confession. And let's immerse ourselves in the graces we have been given, one of those being the community of faith. Let's see her for the gift that she is and press into her, realizing that our lives together will show the world what our God is like. It will show the world how good his rest will be. Indeed, we have somebody better than Moses and Joshua named Jesus of Nazareth. And Ephesians 2 is very clear for us. In him, spiritually and positionally, we have already been through the waters of Jordan, and we are already seated in the promised land. And until the day that that is a complete reality for us, until the day when we enter into that reality in the new Jerusalem, until that day, it's our job as best I can tell. Just like Spurgeon said at the beginning, to help one another kill dragons and cut off giants' head and lead on the timid and trembling. May we be afraid of losing some of the weaklings. But by God's grace and our looking after one another, I hope we will travel safely to the river's edge. I actually love how this is played out in the kids' version of Pilgrim's Progress. It's called Little Pilgrim's Progress, and it puts it so clearly in connection with this text. It's a great little couple of sentences that help us think about the importance of perseverance and speaks to hardship. And certainly in a year like 2020 and beyond and with so much going on in our world, I think it is such a helpful little quote. Here's what it says. We will go on, said little Christian. I do not think the king, I do not think the king will forget us. He knows how tired we are. And he will be sure to give us rest soon. Brothers and sisters, in a fallen world, life is hard. Union with Christ is sweet. But on that day, when we finally see the champion of our salvation face to face, we will not regret persevering now. And so my encouragement this morning is that there is great glory on the other end of perseverance. There is great glory at the end of the Calvary Road. So may we not grow weary in well-doing. Just remember, the king knows how tired we are. And he is sure to give us rest soon. Let's pray. Father, thankful for the words that we've already sung together this morning. Father, our sins are many, but your mercy is more. Father, I pray that you would bless the members of this church. Father, I pray you would bless them, that they would not grow weary in well-doing. And Father, you would use this church as a great lighthouse for the gospel. Father, this morning where we need to be convicted, Father, would you convict us? And Father, where we need to be encouraged, would you encourage us? Father, most of all, would you help us to see Christ, the one who did not grow weary in well-doing until it was accomplished. And now we turn to a foretaste of our future rest in the Lord's table. May you bless us. We pray this in Christ's name.